From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Joelle Mitchell, and I am one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. Before I introduce our guest and topic for the day, allow me to introduce my co-host, Dr. Alicia Pappas. How are you today, Alicia? Not too bad, Joelle. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's our um, last day without Jason in the office. so um, <laughs> Yes, he's coming back next week, isn't he? He is, he is, yep. It's been, um, it's been three weeks of... Uh, Calm and calm and focused work. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I don't have the same um, uh, issues as you day to day because uh, I work remotely from Jason. So it's only if he um, badges me on Teams or via email or calls my mobile. But um, yeah, uh, different. It's going to be different next week for sure. It will be. Yes. Um, yes. No. Uh, well, he, yeah, he does just like to, especially now that he's just across the partition from me, he likes to just stick his head up and <laughs> bother me with stuff. So that's all right. When we were in the uh, the very small office, he would sometimes just like shove his chair and glide it across, roll it across the room to crash into the back of my chair when he wanted to get my attention. So this is a bit better, I guess. <laughs> I can just picture him doing that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, all right, well, let's uh, introduce our guest for today, shall we? Yes. So he is a myotherapist, an author, and a company founder. After over a decade in private practice, he moved into education and technology. He believes that everybody deserves to be pain-free, and so he became the founder and CEO of Bodyguide. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Green. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Alicia. It's lovely to be here. Good to have you on, Matthew. Now, um, can you maybe um, tell us what is a myotherapist? Because I have to say, it wasn't not—it was not a term that I'd um, seen before I met you. And yeah, I love absolutely. this question because I always get confused with you, myo, and remedial therapist, Cairo. What is the difference as well? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. It's a common question still. Uh, myo in, in Latin just means muscle. So the idea was you're a muscle therapist. But that's pretty ambiguous, right? And I think in some ways the confusion around like difference between physio and osteo and chiro and myo is partly because we're, of course, all trying to sort of save, solve the same problems together, help people learn about their bodies and feel better in their bodies and, and certainly solve pain and injuries. But uh, yeah, myotherapy started in, in Victoria about 25 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. And, and part of it was, I think, is in the 90s, say, we sort of saw some of the practitioners get a little bit less hands, hands-on with people and sort of more technology and TENS machines and things come into the space. And my understanding of the rationale as to why it was started was really around the only people sort of doing hands-on manual work with, with, with patients uh, sort of had crystals in the window and, and you know, this kind of a, a more of a wellness bent. Um, and, and so the idea was what's it look like when we have a manual therapist who knows a bit about exercise prescription but also understands their pathology properly. So... Yeah, the short answer is it's a type of physical therapy and it started here in Victoria, still mostly in Victoria and New South Wales. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that friends in the in the West haven't come across it as much. I didn't know that. I thought it was more broad than just Victoria and New South Wales. There you go. There are some poking around and it's actually a really broad, interesting uh, profession, I think, because 
because it's so recent, a lot of the content when it was being put together from sort of a core structure point of view, I, I kind of joke that my therapists were accidentally really, really useful because we were exposed at the same time as the course content was created to a lot of uh, improvements in our understanding of functional anatomy and movement. And so it's not to say that the other disciplines are out of date on a tertiary level, but just my therapists really kind of came into their own as an, as an industry trying to find their space in the industry at a time when we were making really big strides around uh, pain, functional anatomy, functional movement, and certainly, you know, some of the biopsychosocial models that we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on today. So, um, yeah, that, that's my therapy in a nutshell, hopefully. <laughs> oh, nice. So before we kind of delve into talking about pain and how it relates to um, mental health as well, um, seeing as though we're a um, psychological health and safety podcast, can you, we ask this um, everyone, um, all of our guests, um, any favourite podcasts or anything that you're listening to at the moment or engaging with? Yeah, I saw that question pop up in a few of the other episodes, so I kind of I had to think about that um, in case it came up. Uh, yeah, so one just one episode I listened to recently, nothing to do with, with work stuff or with bodies. Um, R.L. Stein, the, the author of Goosebumps, which I don't know if you guys grew up with Goosebumps, but, you know, before J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, Goosebumps was the biggest, well, I think he was the biggest selling author on the planet. Um, it's scary stories for very young kids. Um, and I certainly grew up with them and I'd never heard him speak. I'd never heard anything about him. And he wrote his first Goosebump at 47, actually. And anyway, riotously funny, his appearance on, I think it was Armchair Expert. So that that really has, I've been flogging that to everyone I can. Um, and then outside of that, uh, things like uh, Shit Town. I'm, well, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but that, that, that was a podcast from the Serial Guys that was fascinating. And uh, in particular, uh, I really got lost in a thing called Down the Rabbit Hole, which was a New York Times piece on how people get radicalized on YouTube with the recommendation engine. And they went back through six, six years of this bloke's uh, viewing history and, and picked out the inflection points where he got influenced and the algorithm changed. And obviously there's psychological bent there. And he went from fairly centrist right through to QAnon full conspiracy and then back out again. And that was just a yeah, really interesting deep dive from the New York times. If anyone's interested in that space, uh, key takeaway from that. Teenagers are spending like 12 hours a day, some of them on YouTube, blew me away that like from an addictive point of view, there is this huge subculture that I think maybe we're a little bit too old to really appreciate how big YouTube culture is. So anyway, stuff like that, I get really, really fascinated by. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's actually a big societal problem now that, um, you know, this generation when they're born um, already with internet and I mean, when I was an adolescent, I don't think the internet even came came into the world until I was in my mid-teens. But, um, you know, this generation now is just um, glued to iPads from the age of, you know, two, and then they can just spend hours and hours and hours in front of, um, you know, the internet. Um, it's a big problem and it's affecting social development too. So this is a whole other topic. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So um, maybe before we jump in, um, just tell us and our listeners a bit about your professional career today and how you landed where you landed. Yeah, it's a bit of a circuitous journey, really. Um, I would probably say that my professional career actually started in my teens, not because I was at Unisay, but I was just honestly always really interested in movement. So I, in my career, I would actually say started with, uh, randomly enough, getting really into circus. <laughs> and and I, was, I, was, I was into juggling and handstands and not very into school. And I, I certainly never got the grades um, 
that may kind of say physiotherapy, which is obviously very competitive to get into, never made that kind of like on my radar. But yeah, I was really interested in movement. Um, and I moved to I moved to Victoria from from South Australia uh, about 18 with a bicycle and a backpack ready for an adventure. And I got here, I mean, I'm still in Victoria and, and really fell in love with the place and realized fairly quickly that um, if I wanted to stay, I probably wasn't allowed to keep working in, in a pub and probably needed to do something. Um, and so I, I'd actually tried university very briefly and did like six weeks of, I think it was politics and, and just, it wasn't physical enough for me. It wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. And so when I got here, I was a bit nervy. I'd kind of tried to do uni and failed. And so like failing again, really quickly felt a bit unnerving, but a friend said, Hey, why don't you try this thing called myotherapy? And I, like you guys had never heard of it. I was like, my what? Um, and then I looked into the course and it was, it was structured in a way that if I went and did it, one, I got my afternoons off, so I didn't have to work in the pub anymore, so I could train more circus. Um, and two, if I was bad at it or I hated it, the way the course was structured was I could leave after a year and I would have like a diploma of remedial, ma- look, diploma of remedial massage. Um, and so that seemed like a good bailout point, right? Like, oh, yeah, give it a go, get on Centrelink. And, and what it did, again, was let me train more because I didn't have to work in the pub. Um, and so, yeah, what was fascinating, I got into it. And very, very quickly, that background of circus became relevant because what I found was a fairly rigid culture of what good, healthy movement was. You know, this idea of like an arm goes from here to here and that's optimal and anything outside is bad. And that was sort of entrenched in some of the movement therapy back then. And I knew that the strongest, healthiest people I knew could do all kinds of crazy things with their shoulders. And I knew that I just kind of had this lived experience of bodies are way more interesting than this. And there's all these techniques that I was finding in circus around how to get really strong, say, that were not reflected in, say, rehab exercises that I was being exposed to. And so I got in, I started enjoying it, realized I was okay at it, and then I just went on an absolute learning bender, and I got really interested in who had come before us. So we in Australia really love physical therapy, and it's it's, it's baked into our culture. When I say physical therapy, I kind of lump them all together, so I'm not necessarily saying physiotherapy, but just movement therapy. Um, we have, we've grown up with it. We have a really positive relationship with it, which is fantastic. We're sports mad. Um, but when we look more broadly, there's actually been really fascinating things that don't look much at all like modern treatment. So there's been amazing healers in you know, Israel. There was Moshe Feldenkrais, a judo master that was doing all kinds of amazing movement therapy back in the sixties. Um, a woman named Ida Rolf, uh, from, she was, she was German. And she was a physicist. She wasn't a medical background, um, particularly. And she was looking at bodies in a really interesting way that's not far off how we look at them today. And so I just started learning and learning and learning and learning. And um, yeah, the, the, the inflection point really was I, I was so interested. I was looking for, I guess, not your typical clinic when I came out of uni. And I found one that was, it was a, it was a real baptism, baptism in fire, honestly. Um, they used to run ads on the radio saying, if you've seen physios, if you've seen chiros, if you've seen doctors and you're still not better, if you've spent tens of thousands of dollars on your back, we'll fix you guaranteed. Which is a very cheeky ad to run, right? And cool. so, <laughs> so And very compelling, right? Like putting forward. So my first, first job was in this chronic pain clinic and they were doing something quite interesting. They were um, using very heavy weightlifting principles to fix people with, say, chronic bad backs. And so they were kind of, if you've had 10 years of bad back, their model or methodology was we want to get you lifting 100 kilos so that you lose all of the fear around your back being vulnerable and so you actually get strong and it was a really different model for yeah dealing with these people that hadn't responded to traditional treatments Um, and what was interesting there was sort of i'm making these numbers up this is not stats or research based but let's say the anecdotal experience was for eight out of ten people it worked wonders 
one out of 10, it didn't work at all. And one out of 10, it really irritated. And, and so there was clearly some IP in here, right? There was clearly some nugget of absolute gold in this methodology of using movement and even resistance training for chronic pain. Um, but for a number of reasons, it became apparent that it was time for sort of us to um, expand that kind of body of work. And so me and a friend decided, you know what, let's go do our own thing. Let's sort of take this into it. We, we had a kind of an inkling that it needed to go in a direction. And so we started the clinic as very young guys. <laughs> I think I was 23 when we signed the lease or 22 or something. Um, so super young and yeah, for a number of years running that, we, we used to joke it was our R&D lab. We were just trying to get better at what we did. We could tell that there was more to learn still. And so just refined and refined and refined. Um, and and to, I guess to point out just one more inflection point, having had the space to go and work out our own model um, in this chronic pain setting, uh, there was a particular condition that was really poorly understood, a chronic pelvic condition um, that athletes get and women often get um, post-pregnancy. And there was very little information out there on the, on the internet and conventional wisdom was once you got it, you should rest for 18 months. There's nothing you can do. You're a bit bust. But this video was on YouTube and it was interesting because it was targeting this condition, but it said nothing particularly useful or insightful. And it was racking up views and racking up views and racking up views. And it just, um, yeah, it just really bugged me. And one, one weekend I was like, mm. I'm going to go make some better content. Like I'm just going to go and we filmed these incredibly embarrassing videos that are still on YouTube that I will not give you a link to. Um, and they actually explained this condition or, you know, gave a good overview within a day. We were the whole front page of YouTube. It was such an obscure condition. Um, within two days, we had a message from a bloke named Flavius and Flavius. And he, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this. Flavius was a bloke from Romania is still a bloke from Romania. Uh, who reached out through YouTube and said, Hey guys, I love your video. Can you help me with this online? And we, I looked at my business partner, Jason, who's still actually running and we went, well, we can cry. Like let's, let's have a crack for sure. And so we actually started a telehealth business back in 2015. So way before COVID doing only chronic pelvic pain. And that went re like grew really fast, much faster than the physical business. It proved a few things to me about, you know, the power of not having a landlord. Um, the power of content and education. And it really proved out to me that information was far more important than treatment. And so to wrap up that kind of rambling where we started from story, um, that was enough proof points. 2018, I actually sold my half of it, um, which because one of us, the time zone was killing us because all our patients were in the US and Europe. And so my business partner went to, to the US to do it properly. And I had to, you know, well, chose to stay here, but had to acknowledge that I wasn't really convinced I wanted to have lots of clinics and I wasn't really convinced that I was still continuing to learn a lot personally. And so I decided that it was time to transition out. And that's really the, the story on the way to body guide up after the telehealth um, business went well. And um, yeah, I think I just had a bit of confidence that the next thing that I tried to do might also go well and that, you know, we had permission to try. All right. So um, tell us a bit about body guide then. Yeah. So body guide, um, was also came about sort of from a few different experiments or trials and tribulations. Um, uh, again, I didn't want to, I, I thought, sort of thought I didn't want to run a clinic. And initially the idea was I was actually going to just, I thought I might try and rip off um, the model that the barefoot investor uses. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the barefoot investor, but you know, if you imagine him trying to pitch this concept to barefoot investor, he'd be like, Hey, I'm going to teach people financial literacy and I'm going to make it exciting and tangible. And I'm going to make it interesting for people. And, and so for me, I was like, well, here's another thing we don't know a lot about our bodies, the same as we're not necessarily told with financial skills. Maybe I could be, and, and the idea was actually, I'm going to be 
Matt the Mindful Myo here to save you money at the physio was going to be the jingle. Um, <laughs> and, and I started writing a book and the idea was like, let's make some of this accessible. I was like, maybe I can write a bunch of ebooks about how to fix your knees or how to know, like learn about your back from a deeper level. Um, and as part of that, I had an idea. We have these things called um, pain referral charts, which is to say that, you know, commonly if you have a sore muscle here, say it can refer pain to the elbow or, you know, there's, there's these relationships throughout the body. And they were proven. It's a very interesting old story that we get time I can jump into later. But um, they, they were proven out sort of 50s, uh, like a long time ago. And the charts are really, they're still sort of the same. They're pretty ugly. They have these outlines of a body and then they have blotchy red marks showing pain referral. And as part of this Matt the Mindful Mayo idea, uh, I was thinking about, well, can we just build a nice picture of the body where you can click on where you're sore and it might show you, hey, there's another spot that typically refers pain there. And I said to a friend, can we build it? Fred said, yeah, we can try and build it. And about two days later, um, I was I was actually meditating. At the time, I was doing a lot of meditation and, and getting really into it. And I was sitting on the floor and I, my eyes opened and I realized uh, I'm an idiot. And <laughs> if I got them to click once, as soon as I got them to click twice, the tool itself was sort of looking, it was more useful than Google. Um, because from a logical point of view, Google's really constrained in how we access health information. So it's like my neck is sore, why enter? And it doesn't collect any more data points. So it can't really refine the content for you. And so really that logical awareness made me like throw out all the other ideas I had. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure that we can build a tool that we can take enough data points. My neck is sore here. It's been two weeks. Um, I don't have any you know, tingling in my hands, you know, it's not from a trauma and we could take enough information that a system could one, find out when people were actually at risk and be like, Hey, you should go see someone straight away. So that was baked into the product, but two, that we could build education and movement, you know, good quality clinical exercises into a tool that again, would just allow someone to click on where they saw answer questions and have a program. Um, and from there we've been building and building and adding in different layers to connect to health professionals. And we can talk about that a bit later, but, um, certainly the, the vision has expanded, um, into, uh, the technology is just a little piece of sort of what we're doing with body guide at the moment. Um, really, if I kind of describe the business as a whole, it's really about the fact that the safety community and the healthcare community, they, they don't talk a great deal. Like it's not that we don't have health professionals in the safety community, but as, as communities, we don't have a lot of crossover. And I think that's a real shame because we're all trying to solve similar things and we could learn a lot from each other. And so. When I show people on like a slide what body guide is, there's a circle that's safety and a circle that's healthcare and a narrow into the middle, like a Venn diagram. And uh, yeah, to round that off, I think championing uh, best practice in, in both communities, championing best practice in safety and in healthcare is really what we stand for. And you've been working on some collaborations with research institutions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we've got a few areas that we're sort of pushing and innovating in. And, and yeah, one of them was um, with some funding from the Digital Health CRC and, and La Trobe University. And, and what that's actually looking at is, is novel ways to connect people to healthcare practitioners. So at the moment, or, or historically, we, we have a bit of a legacy issue, I think, in healthcare where we, we really over rely on, on, on appointment structures. So this idea that for you to get support from someone trusted, you have to opt in for a 60 minute session in four days time. If you can get the morning off work, you know, there's all of these things that are blocking us and, and like really, I think barriers to access that we as a, as a community need to start to challenge. And so one of the things I'm really passionate about is the role of what we call asynchronous support. And asynchronous support is as simple as how you text message with friends, which is that you send a message off and you get a message back half an hour later. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be with you both in the same room. 
And so we have a model at the moment where we have an appointment and then another appointment a week later and no touch points in between. And so, yeah, the research component we're looking at is, can we improve access to health professionals in and around appointments by letting you send voice notes and video notes backwards and forwards, you know, so you can just say, hey, I'm trying that exercise you gave me four days ago, click a button and upload it. And then they can just show themselves doing the exercise and get some feedback that day later on in two minutes and not wait another seven days until we see someone again before we make any more progress. So yeah, the research is, is, is actually leaning more towards how can we find novel ways to remove barriers to access and uh, sort of drive behavior change towards, towards people investing in their physical health. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's a really interesting um, idea. And I think something that, could be applied much more broadly um, and just, I guess, just looking at pain. You know, there's lots of other, um, you know, and thinking about like from a, a you know, psychological services context, um, or, yeah, all of those um, allied health areas, I think, um, could, could benefit from those types of learning. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I think people talk a lot about the funding problem with some, some areas in healthcare that like, you know, you're incentivized, people keep, keep coming back and, there's been a lot of discussion on that, but I think in terms of like appointments themselves, it's really, um, we sort of can't see the forest for the trees. It's like, so how used to we are accessing healthcare professionals. And I, we used to have a joke when I first started the clinic with, with one of my good friends, we had two sort of dreams as like young practitioners and we sort of said them together. Yeah. One was that we'd be watching telly, Federer would fall over and our phone would ring. So like that was one cheeky little kind of fantasy was like, We'd be so well respected that when like the best athletes in the world fell down at you know Rod Laver Arena, we'd get the call and we'd go help. So that was like one cheeky one. But the other one was actually that we would be able to build such a strong community and such a strong reputation for this chronic pain space work that when people wanted to come and see us, they would do it almost by application. And so we would review their information and we would say, "Great, we're we're really excited to work with you. Can you please come in Monday morning? Sorry, every morning this week at nine a.m. and every morning next week at nine a.m." And some days we would spend half an hour with you, have a cup of tea, and that would be it. And other days we would train for three hours. And that, yeah. But really going the point from A to B when it comes to behavioral change and, and, and improvements in health and certainly mental health, we don't need to stick to this appointment-based structure forever. Like I think there's interesting room to maneuver uh, and, and to get people back better faster in, in different novel approaches. And, yeah, so this asynchronous support and the work with Latrobe and the Digital Health CRC is really just an extension of that initial vision of, you know, we can probably innovate here a little bit. And, and really important, I think, as well for, um, you know, rural communities or people that actually don't have even access to practitioners, even through appointments readily. So it's um, narrowing that gap too. Absolutely. And there's whole swathes of the community that aren't very comfortable on the phone, whole swathes that don't want to be face-to-face -face or have poor connectivity for, say, a Zoom. And yeah, I think building for the human experience and making sure that we are crafting and, and packaging up our support in ways that make sense to, again, the lived experience of people is something that we as an industry on the healthcare side, I think, need to take a little bit more responsibility for and become a little bit more maybe flexible in, in trying to really listen and get, you know, feedback is not something that as a healthcare community we're used to getting. I guess it's like a, hey, here's treatment and I've been at uni for, you know, how many years and yeah i think the next phase in innovation there is about changing uh yeah changing the access picture and, and letting us meet the patient or really i like saying the customer it's their money it's their time choosing to come and see us um making that a bit more customer centric so so we talk about on this podcast um obviously um mental health related 
issues um, in the workplace. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how pain or chronic pain, I know you're talking um, about back pain, but um, we'll just say physical pain as an umbrella, how that relates to um, mental health and especially to, you know, even psychological risks at work. Yeah, so it's, it's super interesting. When we look at pain, we, we often typically think of pain and our brain goes straight towards kind of the, the chronic pain end or the injury, big bad end, you know, like this claims management space even. But even from like the little niggles day to day right through to that end space, we, we understand there's an incredibly strong correlation with mental health. In fact, we almost can't separate them at all. So if we go to the sort of the heavier end of the, the story and we go into the chronic pain space, we understand there are these comorbidities, you know, recurring chronic pain, which is where you're just, you know, experiencing discomfort in a fairly similar spot for more than three months is kind of the typical way we define it. But anyway, uh, really, we, we, we understand that, you know, in these situations, we're sort of three, four-ish times more likely to develop anxiety and depression. Um, so, like, that's really clearly outlined. We also understand the correlation, uh, not just to self-medication, where we're having more wine and more anti-inflammatories, but also prescription medication, where I think the stats are something like 44% of all opioid use in Australia is tied to general pain relief. So, you know, not cancer, not surgery, just I'm, I'm sore and I'm not sure what to do about it. Um, and, and I think if we then go back to the start, which is the lived experience of most of us, most of us are actually, the majority of us are sore really most weeks, if you look into the data, um, some of the studies show sort of 68% of Australians are sore every week in some way, shape or form. Um, it's, it, I did a, a presentation yesterday to a big safety community group and we asked in the chat, you know, who's experienced pain in the last month? And it was 88% of the respondents. And I think there were 250 or 300 people on that call. So it's really, uh, it's very common. And because we don't know a lot about our bodies, what happens when we progress from, oh, it's just an ache and pain to, oh, I'm actually really sore, is it can be incredibly scary and frightening and upsetting because we go, oh my God, I've really done my back. And if I've done it now at 30, what am I going to be like at 50? So even outside of these kind of psychological conditions or outside of a diagnostic framework, we can, I think a lot of people listening can kind of rationalize and go, oh yeah, when I hurt myself, I was really, really concerned. I was deeply, deeply concerned about that. Um, and that's even for people that can afford professional care. So if you're um, low socioeconomic, or, or under you know financial stress and say you have a physical job suddenly we have a really um tumultuous kind of a intertwined uh situation where we're, we're thinking about our back pain and experience our back pain but in the context of what if i can't go to work next week what if i can't pay the bills my kids school uniform and and there's been a lot of research actually local research from a, a couple of professors here um in, in melbourne looking at these connections between body pain and uh, mental health in, in, in construction workers in particular. Um, and, and yeah, it's a growing acknowledgement that we can't separate them. They are intertwined. Um, and this, yeah, I think there's a lot of progress due in this space, to, to be honest. Um, in terms of psychosocial risk, I think we've, like, I've already sort of painted some of the pictures that could constitute, but in sort of a really direct line, actually in that body of research from Professor Helen Lingard and, and Professor Michelle Turner, they interviewed a lot of construction workers who were not off on a claim. They were just, you know, hey, you saw and tell us how you're experiencing it. And there were a number of themes that were pulled out, you know, catastrophizing fear of the future. Um, but one of them, and it's unfortunate, I will caution like um, uh, themes of self-harm and suicide. So if anyone wants to mute me for a second, absolutely go ahead. Um, one of the respondents just in that trial uh, spoke about in the interview that, that one of their friends committed suicide due to their back pain, that they, they hurt their back and just thought they weren't gonna come good. And so in that respect, um, 
uh, I think we can very clearly point the connection between pain, mental health, and psychosocial risk in terms of, you know, poor physical environments and certainly traumatic events and materials exposure. You know, it's really, it's a lot more than sore muscles. And, and I think us learning to talk about that and, and acknowledge it is a, is a huge opportunity to make progress. So I'd like to explore this idea of pain as a population health issue. Can you um, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's fascinating. Like, I really underestimated how big the pain problem was even as a practitioner. It was only when I started looking at body guide and going into the research that I started to see these huge numbers, like, you know, 68% of Australians. It's like 17 million Australians that are experiencing some kind of body pain every week. You know, I think it I, – I keep thinking surely that's a bit high, but then, yeah, I have experiences like yesterday where we poll people and realise it's not that high at all or it's, it's not outlandish to say. What's that? Uh, and, it's and what's one that? in every two, isn't it? One in it, when you say 17 million, that sounds like one in every two people. Yeah, and a bit more than that. And there's other really fascinating stats in here as well, which is we know 60% of people, when they're sore, they don't do anything about it. They just ignore it or they try their best. Mm-hmm. And I think we could all empathize with that and maybe are all guilty of that because your neck's sore or your back's sore, but you're kind of going, oh, maybe it'll go away on its own. You know, can I really get, oh, I want. Like, I think the appointment structure is a really, I talk a lot about how that's a blocker for early action. Um, But yeah, the majority of us are sore. The majority of us uh, don't do much about it, which meant that when I was running my clinic, I was inheriting people that had been sore for weeks or months prior that were only coming to see me when they were really, really frustrated and pissed, but very frustrated. (laughs) And, And to me, it seems crazy that we weren't providing earlier access. It wasn't that they were lazy. It was that the nature and the price point and the structure of appointments incentivizes people to only rock up when it's really bad. Um, and so in that respect, yeah, it, it, it is a, I, I say pain is endemic, as in it is just sort of everywhere. And we kind of ignore that when we think about injuries, when we think about MSDs, like musculoskeletal disorders, um, we just kind of don't talk about it. And that's a really... I think a fascinating thing because almost all other population health issues you can think of, we have talked about and addressed through these population health education pushes, right? Like we, uh, our first mental health awareness week was in 85. Uh, we've never had a pain aware. Well, we have chronic pain weeks and sort of, again, this medicalized uh, side of it that's sort of talked about. But in terms of, hey, we're all suffering, um, we haven't dealt with it. We, we've done smoking reform. We've done obesity education pushes. We all know what sugar is and the, you know, the dangers of it or you know, harm of it. Um, we've even done financial literacy pieces as well, but we've really never touched this as a conversation. And certainly we don't see it discussed a lot when we discuss mental health and, and they really are. The Venn diagram is an incredible overlap there in terms of comorbidities, secondary injuries. Um, but yeah, it is at the heart of it, a problem that is endemic in all of us. And we're not addressing that. We're just looking at the far end of it, the chronic pain, the injuries. And in that respect, I think the industry a little bit, like I, I felt like I was... One, I was teaching really simple things to really smart people, and that bugged me. You know, I was teaching them basic skills about how to manage your pain and how to learn about your body. So that really upset me when I realized that I was getting more and more expensive and less and less accessible. Um, and, yeah, the second piece really was around these people are they're actually looking for support as well. Like we're Googling it, we're, we're trying to do things, but we're not seeing things in front of us that make sense. So, again, it's feeding into this idea of, like, I'll have an extra glass of wine, I'll doctor Google it, I'll put it off, and eventually... I will go and seek help down the track. So again, I think we have a lot of opportunities if we can acknowledge that it's endemic, we're all suffering with it, it's having real impact. uh, And maybe it's okay if we talk about the same way that we had to be brave initially and say, let's talk about mental health, let's talk about burnout, 
um, we're sort of just maybe 35 years behind the ball on, um, on the progress we've made in terms of mental health. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that we, we haven't got to the point where we're thinking about pain as a public health issue? I think it feels a bit confusing and too hard. Like, I think we've never dealt with the fact that we don't teach our, about our bodies. And some of it's really simple. But, uh, you know, simple things like, what's a straight foot? Like, when you walk, what idea, like, anatomically, what, what does, how, how would you describe a straight foot? And, like, really simple things that don't require fancy anatomy terms. So like, there's a very simple body of work that, you know, how do you effectively self-massage with a massage ball? All this stuff is, we've never touched on it much. And so I think when we, if you say, hey, pain's a big problem, and, and MSDs or musculoskeletal disorders are driving the driving claims factor. Um, if you then say, well, what, what, if it's a big problem, we acknowledge it, what are we going to do about it? And, and I think that's really unclear. It's like, well, should we go to, should we all just go to physio every week? Or like, like, is it more sit stand desk? Like what, what on earth, where would we even start? And so what we're seeing now in the conversation and it's something that we're really pushing is, is really looking at um, one demedicalizing pain which is that we don't need to wrap people in cotton wool as soon as they're sore. In fact, we're all sore and we're all ignoring it. We're actually pretty resilient. So if we can demedicalize pain a little bit, I mean, it's not even compensable under the you know work cover schemes. Um, we, we need to demedicalize it. And then we have permission to kind of not treat it as such a scary thing. And we can start to teach people about their bodies. And from there, I think it becomes more obvious what solutions might look like for different populations. But we've never shifted the autonomy onto the the individual when it comes to looking after their physical health. It's really like, if you're sore, that's a concern. Or you're really sore. Heavens, we better give you a diagnosis, a scan, jump on the treatment table. Um, and for every person that's sort of teaching people out their bodies, um, there's, there's nine people that are treating, just, you know, doing this passive jump on the table. I'll give you a rub. See you later. And that's the context with which we think of our bodies, which is we're hopeful they stay pain-free as long as we can. And when we do, we have to outsource to someone else because we don't know anything about it. And that's been the culture that is sort of in, ingrained in society that when we get sore, other people are responsible for it because we don't understand it. Um, and so I, I hope that answers the question. But I think, honestly, our, our lack of understanding and confidence in addressing our own bodies means that we are unable to think of different alternative ways that we could be approaching the pain problem in society. Yeah, so I think... You, you probably sort of answered this question already, but then what, what would a population approach look or a population health approach rather sort of look like in this context? Yeah, so the word that we, or the words we bounce around a lot is body literacy. So the same as financial literacy and, and mental health. We have a sense of mental health literacy. We understand there's a, there's a sense of we have to keep on top of our stress, our burnout, take time off. We have meditation, absolute kind of thing. And really what we're talking about with body literacy is similar coping strategies that we actually teach. And so at Bodyguard, we sort of define body literacy in three really clear ways. One is the skills to self-manage aches, pains, and tension. So it's just one, like, hey, when I'm sore, I can do something. It doesn't mean I can always solve it. and doesn't mean I won't need professional care. Again, a lot of what we do at Bodyguard is making professionals more accessible. Um, but just like this inherent piece of like, how do I get on top of this myself? Or what skill sets can I do? The second is the knowledge to understand and choose between healthcare providers. So that's another piece of body literacy is we're, we're still seeing people not really clear, should I see a physio for that or should I see a doctor for that? And certainly not clear on how to tell the difference between a good one and a bad one. Mm. So that's like an innate skill set that we sort of talk about with body literacy is like, what is high value care? What should be happening when you see a great doctor or a great physio? Um, that's not there. And then the third piece is actually a clear path to continued learning. And so what that means is that, let's say you go and see someone, 
you have an appointment at the end of that, there's nothing really for you to do. Like you might have some exercises, but in terms of like, if anyone said, Hey, I'm just really interested in learning about my hips and my back. There's nowhere really for people to go. And I think people are very interested in learning about their bodies and getting more out of them in terms of health and performance. Um, but for us, yeah, body literacy, shifting the onus away from professional care whenever you get sore to, hey, we can learn personal coping strategies exactly the same way as we deal with mental health. That, that is the next meaningful shift in terms of addressing it is being brave enough to say, hey, you're not fragile. Here's some skills. Try them, experiment. Some will work, some won't. And making that conversation an okay one to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's all about it's all about um, you know um, educating people on pain and uh, or even like you said their bodies. Um, if you're experiencing certain pain or symptoms, um, this is what you can do first. See if you can resolve it first, and then if not, this is what you do thereafter professionally and and guidance into. I mean, I, I said it initially when we started. We started this podcast episode. Um, what's the difference, and how do you know where to go, um, and and who's the best for you? Um, so it's yeah, it's all about empowering the individual to to help themselves first and know where to go for for help and treatment. Correct. And I mean, all change management, like even if you look at safety, you look at healthcare, and a lot of other industries, what we have in common at the heart of it is behaviour change. Like that's essentially what we're trying to achieve. And for any change management principle, like the first step has to be awareness. So if we don't talk about it, we can't listen to people's experiences, which means we can't learn and adapt and grow. Like we have to kind of just start with the very simple things of, um, yeah, awareness piece and then education and yeah, teaching, not just treating is the thing that I always call out. Like we've got to be teaching and educating. We have to teach to fish, not just say, that's fine that you're sore and struggling, keep coming back every week and we will help you out with that. I think there's a again, an autonomy piece we're missing. And certainly in the research, we know that when we scan, when we diagnose, when we refer, when we rely on passive treatments, which is to say when we're just giving someone a rub or a crack and they're not doing anything, they're not participating in an active way, that actually we're having worse outcomes for our patients. So we know when we scan someone, um, it, 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 it freaks them out, you know, that, that, oh, this must be really serious. I have to go get a scan. Um, and then they get all this language that, you know, is unfamiliar and that can be scary. And when we're anxious, our pain sensitivity can go up as well. So, again, we, we're really clear that um, the current model, a lot of what we take for granted in terms of, you know, first diagnose, then scan, then get exactly. We know that none of that is particularly true. In fact, almost the opposite. We know that you can uh, address pain without a diagnosis incredibly safely. And we know that, yeah, bad bedside manner and giving someone a diagnosis with language they don't understand actually has negative impacts on their outcomes um, because, again, it ties into their psychology. They start to panic and worry. They feel like, oh, now I'm fragile. I better not do that or hurt myself. They become less active, don't go to sport, don't have the social support. So it's this domino effect that's happening when we're sore and we don't understand it. And we as a medical community are really trying to demedicalize pain, encourage movement, encourage bravery and exploration. And I think the next exciting piece, which is down the track, is how that starts to bleed into the return to workspace or, you know, because that, that space is still very much, we've got to diagnose, we've got to scan, we've got to know exactly what's going on. And so there's a tension there as well, but that's, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, I would like to just um, tap into that, um, not, not so much the return to work component of that, but... Um, you know, where you, you talked about there, that interaction between pain and, and mental health and sort of people's psychosocial experience at work. Um, do you have any um, 
thoughts or, or recommendations on the way that organisations currently respond or, or manage when they do have employees who are experiencing sort of chronic pain, um, you know, and are there better approaches that organisations could use, assuming that it's like a, a not a not a work-related injury but, you know, somebody, yeah, having, having long-term back pain or migraine or something like that? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to sort of unpack there. Um, if we're comfortable with the playbook that we've used for mental health, then we can kind of just reproduce that, as in like, you know, very simple, you know, are you okay days? There's an are you sore day, you know, like, there's ways in which we could just piggyback off that if we were happy with that progress that we're making. But in terms of looking at it from an organizational point of view, again, if we have endemic pain rates throughout the population, if we can look at studies like the one comparing bodily pain and mental health and construction, we can say that the problem isn't really a claim problem. It's a, it's a health of the workforce problem. And then we can layer on that things like social stigma. So uh, stats show about 37% of people are not comfortable talking about pain at work. And so with this in mind, like we're not talking, and part of that is insecure workforces too. Imagine if you're a contractor, you're not going to feel safe to tell people, which kind of ties into the co comment you just made then, which is um, the best of the best in the space at the moment, the employees that are really progressive, they're, they're actually doing things like having on-site services and looking at sort of physical therapy as more of a coaching proactive layer that, you know, staff can just access. And the best of the best are not making any distinction at all anymore between whether you was, you know, hurt yourself at home or at work. And the reason for that, again, it ties into the social stigma is that if I've been gardening on the weekend and I've done my back, I'm still going to rock up on Monday because I can't afford not to. I'm not going to tell my manager because I can't afford to get fired or told to go home. So now I'm an absolute walking liability all week at work with this underlying issue that's not getting addressed because I'm too frightened to tell anyone. And so this stigma in the workplace is actually driving under disclosure or, or uh, what we want to call that. Um, and so I think, again, the first step is awareness. And I think the second step, and we're already seeing this, is that lack of accessibility, the idea that we have this big divide between Dr. Google and an appointment, uh, we're seeing employers trying to step up and fill that gap. And we're seeing that with advancements in remote care, advancements in telehealth, where we can do something scalable for the whole team. Um, we're seeing the rise or just the early days of talk about EAPs for pain. You know, if we allow two or three free anonymous sessions with a psychologist, why are we not allowing the same thing with a physical therapist if it's, you know, the comorbidities are there? Um, and so I think that's a really interesting piece. And, and again, yeah, on-site services for high-risk sites, we're actually seeing employers be like, it's so much cheaper to just put a physio to hire one and put them in a room. And it's something that I've done on, on manufacturing sites um, before as well, been called and just like sat in there for one day a week and tried to build relationships with the team and work with them direct. And so I think from an organizational point of view, once we get past job design, which is still, to my mind, king, like it's still, you know, keeping your back straight or getting an extra massage or whatever, like none of that's going to change um, inappropriate job design. You know, like that's still the foundational thing that we can do. And so for some of the industries, when they do job design properly, which involves consulting with stakeholders and talking to the people close to the problem, and ideally, if it's safe to, you know, rolling up your sleeves, putting on your high vest and doing the thing so that you're closer to the problem, but yeah, once we solve that, then we're looking at, again, the endemic pain thing. What's blocking people from accessing care? It's stigma at work. It's lack of affordable options when they want to talk to a health professional. And we're seeing organizations start to try and challenge that. And then the ideal bit is when we do get the therapists in, that we're then taking that kind of biopsychosocial model or body literacy model and putting that first. So we're not just doing massage at the desk. We're actually trying to build relationships with the clients, um, make it relevant to them, teach them about their body, 
de-escalate any catastrophizing. So asking, hey, how have your emotions been impacted by your back pain? Let's talk about that. That's a really big part of the change in the healthcare community that I think is offering a big glimmer of hope to the safety community that those spends become, they have a better return on investment, that they're actually useful. And again, not just a massage at your desk perk, but something meaningfully baked into business as usual for an organization. So you just got me thinking about something then, you know, if we've got sort of, you know, more than more than 50% of people who are, you know, experiencing some level of pain um, at any point in time, the the impact of pain on mood and then like how you're actually interacting with your colleagues and how that might influence things like workplace incivility, um, lack of co-worker support because you haven't got the bandwidth to deal with to, to help somebody else because you're just trying to grit your teeth and get through your day. Um, I think that that interrelationship is quite interesting. Yeah, in, in that study I keep kind of referencing because it's I, I love it because it's local and it's had a big impact and it's important work. Um, they, they, there's actually one of the people in the interviews that calls out that everyone on site thinks he's a grump. <laughs> they don't mm. like because he's sore all the time. But if, again, if we look at, so again, we think about this issue as a claims issue and a chronic pain issue and like all serious. Um, and I mean, even the chronic pain stats, I think one in five Australians identifies having chronic pain. So we, we actually have a really big problem on the far end as well. But on the just we're sore every day end, when you dig into the stats and you look at those 60% of people that are ignoring their pain and trying to grin and bear, uh, I think the cost to, there was a Deloitte report not long ago, um, cost in lost productivity alone is something like $48 billion. And, and off the back of that, I don't like big numbers like that because I think we can't sink our teeth into it. But I went and looked at some of the literature and, and who was trying to price prevention, like, you know, how do we price that? And who was looking at what we call presenteeism, which is where you're at work, but emotionally and mentally, you're obviously, you're elsewhere. And, and when you crunch the numbers in, in the literature there, we can say that for every single employee in Australia, not just the sore ones, if we average it out across all employees, we're losing 9.6 hours of productivity every month. And that's every single employee. And, and if we rationalize it, that's like a half a morning off work for an appointment, two afternoons where we're checked out, we're not actually doing much, we're, just, we're overwhelmed, we're not coping. And I think sometimes when we think about that as well, the overwhelmed, not coping, grinning and bearing, it starts to have, again, these crossovers with things like burnout. Like I've, I've spent three weeks trying to concentrate on a Zoom call and my neck and my headache is just going like this. And I said that silly thing to my coworker and they're going to tell someone else, it is inseparable, the experience of people that are struggling with pain at work from, again, the mental health load. And while we have been fixated on MSD claims, for those of us looking at it, there is this huge opportunity to deal with the presenteeism, the endemic pain, and, yeah, the lived experience of people and how that's having knock-on effects within the organisation, as you pointed out, Joelle. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about it from, um, you know, that lens as well, um, that, um, because there's such a big crossover. Um, so much of the workforce is affected by um, pain. Therefore, a lot of the workforce is also going to be affected um, from a mental health perspective. And yeah, and I think too, not just their pain. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, in yesterday's uh, presentation, which I think was, yeah, a few hundred health and safety professionals, the, the stats was 88% have been sore in the last month. The next question, I, think, I feel like I'm having deja vu, but was about how it's affected. Did I already talk about this with the how it's, have you been affected by a loved one in pain? You didn't touch on that? Yeah, so the next question that I posited to the group was, who's been personally impacted by a loved one who has experienced pain or physical injury? You know, who's had an actual, they've had to watch their partner, you know, um, upset, sore necks every night and headaches or, you know, didn't get to sports or couldn't pick up the kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
And the, the, the responses in the poll was 92%. So even if we're lucky enough to not experience it, pain affects us and everyone around us as a community um, in a lot of different ways. And one of the fascinating things, again, to harp on that construction piece was when they are some of the employees in this sort of very masculine macho culture, which is, you know, construction, we can say, um, they asked, you know, do you think it affects your mood? And some of the responses were like, I've never thought about it, but yes. <laughs> Like, I'd never really connected the two, but yeah, of course, I guess it does. And so even that level of literacy of, like, people being self-aware that their pain has been having an effect on their mood is, like, again, we're, we're really, we're 30, 40 years behind on where we are with mental health. But all of us, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening and, and us in the call, we can all very quickly go, that makes sense. You know, like, I, I've had an experience of that, and I've seen someone like that. So we're all aware of it. Again, we just haven't necessarily started the conversation piece. Mm-hmm. So just going back to um, body literacy, so you mentioned that as obviously an intervention. Um, do you know of any, um, whether that it's been research or any reported outcomes, the effect that it's had on um, chronic pain outcomes? Oh, absolutely. So this is not just us coming up with a thing and saying this will be a solution. Um, pain self-efficacy, which is how it's normally discussed in the literature, self-efficacy, and, and again, in in the sort of the physical health space, we've been talking about biopsychosocial risk for a long time now, which is to say that it's biological, it's social, it's psychological. Um, but yeah, we know that when we improve pain self-efficacy, we decrease pain, we decrease depression, we decrease catastrophizing. Um, we, all of these markers improve when we shift the autonomy, not the responsibility wholly, but the autonomy to the patient. Um, and and we, we, again, a lot of this is about us not medicalizing pain. If you went into it, you know, if you asked every physical therapist on the planet, you know, what's the one thing you wish we could we could change or go back and change? And I think the vast majority would say, I'm so upset that we, up, you know, we freaked people out with scans and this idea of like disc issues. Like that's a huge, like there are so many people out there that still go, I did a disc, my back's never going to get better. They get on the grog, they get on. And we know now we, we've scanned thousands and thousands of healthy people with absolutely zero pain, zero pain, what's and no history of significant pain. When we scan healthy people, we see disc degeneration, we see disc bulges, we see stenosis, we see all of these structural issues that have nothing to do in all likelihood with the presentation. But the problem is, again, we, we sort of scan them, we give them this, and then they, they really internalize that and take that on board. So I think, yeah, again, lots of, lots of room, lots of discussions, lots of interesting facts, like things we've learned in the last 10 or 15 years and advancements in care that have not trickled down into the community, I guess. But um, yeah, the self-efficacy piece is really the frontier of we can demedicalize pain. If we don't scare our patients, if we don't stop them moving, if we don't give them surgery, if we just stop doing all this really medicalized stuff around pain, everyone gets you know, like it, the whole situation improves uh, because you have this absolutely tiny slither of presentations where it's really serious and we do want to go straight to the ED, say. But we're not even teaching people how to identify those. And those are very simple. Like if your back is very sore and you wet yourself, <laughs> that means go straight to the emergency department because we've got a loss of function. If you suddenly can't feel your whole arm or can't move your foot, then that is an emergency. But we already know that. Like we don't need it. <laughs> like we would do that anyway. But in terms of like my back pain is unbelievably severe and I can't get off the couch. That's actually not necessarily a sign to pain. It's obviously very upsetting, but it's not... Severity of pain is not tied to severity of a condition at all. Um, so again, there's, there's all these layers here where we can look to pain self-efficacy, aka body literacy, 
as being maybe not the entire solution, but a huge important foundational block for us starting to tackle the problem. Yeah, and you mentioned um, earlier um, musculoskeletal problems um, and how they're, you know, I guess the most common um, claim um, when we talk about workplace injuries. Um, what's the relationship between musculoskeletal claims and mental health or psychological injury? Yeah, I, I just, I always appreciate when someone else stumbles on musculoskeletal too, because having a relationship in years, I still can't say it properly. There isn't it. It's such a mouthful. Um, really interesting space. And in actual fact, I've been trying to dig into this. And if anyone is watching this back and is like a subject matter expert, please reach out because I'm trying to dig into some of this. But I'll, I'll sort of share what I, I understand and what I know. If we look outside of claims, we absolutely understand and see in the data the relationship between physical pain and comorbidities, again, like depression and anxiety. So we understand that we have these secondary knock-on effects um, and we've known it for a very long time. When we go into sort of the data claim space, and look at it, we of course understand that there are oftentimes or sometimes, depending on how we splice it, um, secondary psychological injuries or psychological conditions that are triggered by the initial event. Um, and again, we're, we can have a very broad area of musculoskeletal claims from I've hurt my back to I got, you know, I got run over by a forklift and my leg, you know, there's, there's a broad space there. But what's interesting and, and why I think there's a paucity of, of clear data on it, which again, I'm trying to dig out at the moment, is because in the event that we have a primary injury and it gets coded as an MSD, um, and then there's a secondary psychological condition or injury after it, it's not always that it, the injury gets recoded or reclassified. And so in terms of in a ledger, if you look at it, it just says, you know, musculoskeletal disorder. But then if you take a population of a bunch of people on claims and you look at the ones that don't get better, you know, my inference would be that that number would be sort of 40 to 70% of the people that don't bounce back from the physical don't bounce back because of these secondary comorbidities or secondary psychological conditions. But again, I'm, I'm trying to dig into the data at the moment because I'd love to be able to say 33% or something. But again, we understand the relationship crystal clear in the non-claim space, but part of how we report on injuries makes it a little bit more difficult to really pull that number out, or, or at least I've, I've had trouble recently trying to find a clear story there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, but the the crux of it is when you have yes. um, you know, <laughs> that you're very likely to have, um, you know, your mental health will be affected. Like you said, even, you know, you ask people, just ask them the question, how, did, how are you feeling from an emotional perspective? And they have to stop and think about it and think about what's driving that. And it'll be fear about their pain or just um, the limitations that the pain is presenting is obviously going to affect them. So, um, yeah. So, so in terms of implications of those comorbidities between um, pain and uh, mental health, what are the implications yeah. for employers? Yeah. And so I think it's probably worth calling out too on the last point. We, we know there are two risk factors here. So one is the actual knock-on effect of the traumatic event, you know, that I'm sore and how it's managed. And yeah. if I don't feel supported at work, you know, we know that return to work interventions are improved or outcomes are improved if the work is perceived to be a supportive space. Mm -hmm. The secondary risk that we know contributes to secondary uh, psychological conditions or psychological injury is actually tied to just the return to work process itself. Yeah. That the whole process can be really deeply confusing. Um, it, it looks like the opposite to autonomy in a lot of ways. You have a case manager, you know, you get to choose who you see as your treating practitioner, but then there's all these other people contacting you and hassling you. And if we look to the research more broadly, the more referrals we see and the more scans we see, the worse prognosis. So if you get bounced around for another check, another thing, and each experience you've got maybe questionable bedside manner, 
which again, we know impacts outcomes. You know, there's a whole bunch of touch points that are uh, put into effect once we go into the claims process that again, are risk factors in and of themselves from a psychological point of view. And with that in mind, um, you know, the real direct exposure there for an employer is just these terrible return to work outcomes that drive up their premiums, that make them short staff, that feed into a bad workplace culture. Um, so anything that we can do to obviously buffer claims, but certainly make the process once someone's in that stream better is going to have a direct impact on the bottom line of, of the organization. Uh, and it, it's really interesting because a lot of, I think, because it's such a liability culture, I think that's the other thing I love to call out today is like, no one's touching prevention probably because we're also stuck in, oh my God, what if we miss a diagnosis, which is actually not at all part of the best practice healthcare. Um, there's this real sense of, you know, I don't want to know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to like, I don't want to hear anyone sore because I'm worried I'm going to get an extra claim. And what that's doing again in terms of the impact is letting these things sit there, get worse. The social um, cohesion within the organization, we, we know these are again, impacting return to work outcomes. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's not just about losing a hundred thousand in sort of indirect claims, which is what we know, like the worst of the worst sort of physical claims sort of end up costing. You know, if you think about it from an organizational point of view, you can see that as a hundred thousand dollar loss maybe, but you could also shift that onus onto the marketing department and say like, all right, we're going to have all these claims and not deal with them. But for every claim we have, I need you to make an extra hundred thousand dollars for the company <laughs> to make up for it. Like we really frame that spend quite strangely. Uh, and I think maybe to sign off on that, idea or if you've got other questions that's, that's on this topic, but a lot of the problems that employers are trying to solve through safety, through a safety lens, often we're thinking about it as like, well, what's the ROI? Where's the evidence? What's the, you know, and, and in truth, if we actually take a look at medicine more broadly, and certainly in the physical therapy space, we haven't necessarily solved all these things or have the most amazing evidence for we do either. Like th th there's actually a real paucity in evidence around, you know, best practice healthcare. And so if you're asking the safety community to solve problems the healthcare community hasn't, which is like, how do we prevent injuries and improve health of our people? One of the things that I really encourage companies to think about is, is framing their safety spend as an R&D expenditure. All other areas of good companies have R&D expenditure towards making life better and making better products and improving the business. But then we go to these little safety budgets and we say, well, where's the evidence for that? And the reality is if we don't, like, we can't find it yet, we need to spend and explore. Because if we're, if we're not spending, we're not learning, right? We're not trialing things and we're not testing things. And so I think when companies realize that there's a really rich opportunity to kind of not think of it as an innate unavoidable loss, but think of the implication to the rest of the business in terms of revenue they require to offset it, then suddenly we can take a little bit of that budget and say, let's treat this as R&D. Let's start experimenting with employee wellness. Um, let's start experimenting with safety. And, and the other thing there that I'm not good at a short answer, um, wellness budgets and safety budgets are so treated separately, right? It's considered very, oh yeah, we, we do this nice wellness piece to keep people, you know, we show we care and we have a safety budget. And when budgets go away, we see the wellness budget disappear. But all the best practice injury management work out there, and certainly on the psychological side, is all about the healthier our team is and the better we can make their life, you know, through job design and reducing hours and all this kind of stuff, the better their health is. And, and you know, without getting too stuck into the employee wellness side, you know, we have studies like if you sleep seven hours or less a day for two weeks in a row, just seven hours or less, your injury rate spikes 1.7 times. And it's like, 
who, especially on like a shift work site, like 12 hour shifts and like, I mean, medicine's notorious for bad shift hours. Um, the health, the innate health of the employee, this wellness wishy-washy thing is actually one of the biggest drivers for how we keep people safe. Um, and so again, I think organizations are kind of thinking about it from just a liability, a risk, what's my premiums and yeah, R&D expenditure, appreciating employee wellness properly instead of lip service actually addressing some of the concerns like long work hours now we're cooking now we've got like a really great framework to to address some of these problems and to start learning about them internally as an organization well matt this has been a really um interesting conversation obviously a fairly sort of different topic um to to most of the things that we talk about on this podcast but i think that the um the relationship between pain and, and mental health is quite clear and certainly, um, yeah, as, as you said, anybody who's been, been in a situation where they've been experiencing a moder- even a moderate level of, of ongoing pain can sort of um, see the impact that that has on their relationships and, and how that can actually, yeah, in, impact not only their own mental health but also that of, of the people around them and in the workplace. So I think um, there's, you know, there's a big opportunity here to for organisations to think more and explore more about the interactions between pain um, and mental health and, and psychological health and safety and all of that, um, you know, really is a, an ecosystem, I think, um, how, how they all sort of um, touch and, and um, impact each other. In saying that, what are your hopes for the future of, um, I mean, we, we always ask about workplace mental health, but I think maybe more broadly workplace health. Yeah, I mean, even on the mental health side, uh, what I want to say there. So one of the questions I think around how we've approached mental health is, is we've, have we done enough change off the back of all of the awareness, right? We've done so much awareness. Have we seen meaningful change? And I think, you know, we've talked about mental health, but maybe not gone deep into mental illness and some of, again, the other topics that maybe are not as palatable or not as... Um, yeah, not as comfortable having the conversations. I think, I think honestly, the short answer is, is essentially action on some of these principles. So uh, we can point out like reduced work hours, right? Like there's clearly a lot of evidence that people can be incredibly productive in four days and they can't work five days, eight hours or 10 hours a day and be their best. So I think we'll shift from this culture of, um, I think we'll be brave and we'll start seeing some industry leaders start to actually change some of the job design principles that are really contributing. I mean, you look at the, the story with the, the young worker from Ernst & Young from a couple of weeks ago, and that, again, heavy topic, um, the, the suicide that, that occurred there. And, and while, you know, it's under investigation and et cetera, it's brought on this huge, massive media coverage of all the principles happening in sort of some of the big pores and the overworked population and the stress. And so we still have, I think, if I'm being a bit critical, and I, I, I'm not sure if you guys would agree with me, um, we're maybe not seeing the follow through from some of the mental health initiatives. We're not necessarily necessarily seeing enough change or, or lever pulling of things that we already know work. And so I think, yeah, we've done a wonderful job of the awareness piece for mental health. We need to do it for pain, get an acknowledge the connection. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we see meaningful job design change around hours, um, around access to care. Again, that's a common principle. Um, and and start to look at employee health and social cohesion as being really big levers that they're not necessarily easy to pull. The social cohesion thing is probably easier than encouraging unhealthy people to invest in their health. But again, these are 
in some ways, low-hanging fruit, I guess, is probably the sign-off there of just, you know, if you've got people working 60 hours a week, they're not healthy people and they're not as productive as they can be. And we know this, right? Like, so maybe a shift away from performance mindset into productivity mindset and that being rooted in evidence and human experience is, is what I would hope to see uh, continue and, and gain momentum in that conversation around both mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely um, themes that we commonly talk about here you know yeah stop stop messing around the edges and actually get in and and do the hard work on on work design and that's where you're actually going to see change yeah yeah absolutely so just a final one matt um just just some parting words for our listeners um who want to actually improve how their organization might actually approach um pain um because i know you've already spoken about this throughout the, the episode maybe some just key takeaways yeah, I mean, I think the three steps are, are again, I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself, but awareness, you know, some kind of a sign from the employer that we're happy to talk about this. That could be as simple as buying some massage balls and getting in the local physio or yoga person talking about these things, you know, kind of making that part of part of the, I guess, business as usual and, and sort of making it very clear that we're empathic and we understand these are impacting people. Um, but yeah, the rest of it is really sort of site specific and job specific. So again, I still think it comes down to job design, right? Like you on site will know which things are most appropriate as opposed to me being here being like, everyone should do this. But again, those themes are there. So awareness, um, education and removing that liability. I, I don't want to hear, I don't want to see, I don't want to hear, I don't want to see that we have in all these workplo- uh, workplaces. Um, and then, yeah, the big shift is improve access to care for your team. And so whether that's like some companies I've seen have just like given all their team members five grand a year to invest in their health however they want to. And that's a weird version of individualist, individualized job design, right? Like, as in like, you know what you want to spend your money on to stay healthy. And um, that's not reasonable for all employers. But again, I think there's, if we can improve the access to care when people need it, and we can create a foundational support network prior to that point, then we start winning. So that might be an EAP for pain for one organization. It might be a physio on site and a psych on site functioning as coaches for a high risk site. Um, or it might be as simple as a webinar and a couple of you know books and a couple of massage balls and something not lighter touch. But again, we just want to start somewhere and then we can learn. We, we can't just apply a solution. We want to, again, use these principles to engage with our people, acknowledge that if we can help them, we, the business thrives, the people thrive. Um, and then, yeah, it's really about job design and trying to tease out what's first things first, what's second things second, uh, and, and going from there. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Matt. It's been really um, interesting um, talking with you and, and sort of learning about this um, tangential issue of, of pain for people. Um, so if listeners are interested in hearing more about what you do or want to find out um, about Body Guide, how can they get hold of you? Uh, honestly, like reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm always on LinkedIn. I love, you know, send me a message and we can chat. Um, obviously, the website, which is bodyguideapp.com, um, jump on there. Hopefully, I don't update it by the time you're watching this, but yeah, bodyguideapp.com. We'll just look at bodyguide. Um, but yeah, just reach out. Honestly, it's a conversation that we're having more and more of. Um, I think it's a growing space, and anyone who's interested in it, I'm interested in connecting with. So um, yeah, just find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Green, Bodyguide, and uh, yeah, we can keep the conversation going. Fantastic. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of our episode for today. Um, Don't forget we do uh, publish the full video recordings of our podcasts on our YouTube channel. 
Um, otherwise, you can check out our Flourish DX LinkedIn page for the short mini clips that we publish. Um, otherwise, you can also reach out to Alicia and me through LinkedIn. We're also on there fairly regularly and always up for a chat or a debate, um, depending on which way you want to go with it. <laughs> um, so that's it for today, listeners, and we will catch you next time. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.